Welcome, one and all, to the season finale, I guess, of our first season of Mophies. We have been covering every Masters of Horror episode. We now reach number 13, lucky number 13 in season one. This is the episode that was too shocking to air on cable, even though the whole idea of the series was that it was on cable and you can do anything. But apparently not if it involved a lot of fetuses. So with us, as always, is me, Emily, and our lovely Christine. Say hello. Hi, I'm here. Yes, she is. Uh, And on this episode, we have brought in a special guest from Over the Pond, because he is closer to Japan. I think that's as good a reason as any. Uh, The one and only Elwood Jones. Well, thank you for having me back on. It is a pleasure. Now, you have a certain affinity for this episode or just for Takashi Miike? Um, It's more towards Takashi Miike than this particular episode. I mean, the show itself, I loved and when it came out because it had that sort of throwback to the revamp of the outer limits when that came out they're very similar sort of in style and the fact that it's a lot of my favorite directors sort of coming out of retirement for many of them and Mm -hmm. getting their mojo rejuvenated especially in the case of carpenter um it was just a really interesting project and obviously Mike being involved Mm -hmm. um again was just really interesting so did you watch this were you big into Mike when this came out in 2006 uh yeah i mean with Mike it was really from 2001 with the release of audition over here in the uk and i mean that along with battle royale and the ring just sort of helped rejuvenate this interest in asian cinema sure. and led in really just sort of that whole j horror boom and then pretty much everything that followed after it really that we're still sort of uh, seeing now yeah. uh, with like Asian cinema, like still on a high uh, parasite, just winning the best film Oscar and pretty much everything else. So it's just a really intri- exciting time, especially for Korean cinema uh, yeah. to be into Asian cinema. So, yeah. And as much as I think, you know, our biggest issue with this season of Masters of Horror has been the overwhelmingly white male straight directorness of it. It is, in hindsight, you look back and say, oh, wow, they did, you know, it it was kind of smart and modern of McGarris to look and say, oh, you know what, Japanese cinema is, is huge and there's a whole movement in horror. Why don't I bring in the current, perhaps reigning master of Japanese horror with Takashi Miike? Now, Christine, you did not watch this episode when it aired or ever until today, correct? Correct. Okay. Yes. Fascinating. That would be, now, that would be correct. What is your relationship with Takashi Miike? Um, I've seen a couple things. I don't really have a strong opinion either way. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't feel well versed enough to mm-hmm. say anything one way or the other. Yeah, I still haven't seen some of his big ones. Like I think it's Ichi. I haven't seen. Um, I, I've seen. I've seen Ichi, I've seen Audition. I think I've seen a couple other things, but I don't remember. To me, I would probably not be that impressed by him based on what I saw, except for Happiness of the Categories, which I adore. Have either of you seen that one? Oh, yeah, it's uh, Sound of Music with Zombies, which is always fun. But, I mean, Mike is kind of like this hired gun in Japanese cinema, especially... When he, at this point in his career, because he was churning out about seven or eight films a year, yeah. um, he just 
over in Japan, I mean, the culture is a lot more different than it is in America. They just sort of churn films out, and it's look very sort of more disposable. So it's kind of like that. Um, what cinema was in like the 60s and 70s in America, where it's just like you're creating product, right? Or kind um, of what Lifetime cinema is like now. Yeah, and when you look at Mikay's filmography, I mean, while we obviously focused on a lot of his outlaw periods so of films such as like Ishe the Killer and Dead or Alive, um, Audition, these sort of like really grotesque things, there's some really bizarre hidden gems in there. When you look at his like doing comedies like Ninja Kids or he's doing um, just sort of really sort of lighter stuff like Bear People in China, it's a really diverse filmography even mm-hmm. though he's probably best known for his extreme cinema side yeah. and with imprint it kind of marked the end of that era mm. for him after this he went on to do like 13 assassins and made a lot more some more mainstream uh things that and um i think uh, it, the, with imprint it sort of marked the end of it so like there was nothing left in the box <laughs> so there's nothing left he could shock us with <laughs> no more dead babies to be found to. you know that's yeah that's interesting <laughs> actually now that you say that because this does feel, um, and I remembered it feeling this way, and on rewatch, it felt that way, but then I was like, you know, there, there's there's a good story fighting to be told, but there is so much that just feels like, how many fetuses can I throw at the screen, that it is so aggressively, uh, just how, how much can I shock you? And, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean... Problem is, you got a director like Mike. You tell him you can, because this is the thing. Gareth basically said to him, "Oh, you can uh, go you away and do whatever you yeah. want. Try to keep and, it to about an hour." Yeah. Yeah, and unfortunately, when you tell Mike that you can do whatever <laughs> you want, he's just going to take in a completely like, oh, okay. different direction. And obviously, that led to him being banned in the states. This episode in the UK, we got it shown um, because our censorship apparently is a lot lighter, despite. Everyone's impression we're really stuck up. I mean, we got Brain Dead on cut. We got mm-hmm. Battle Royale before you guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we got this shown on TV pretty much on cut. And I think we got punished by the fact that we got Snowpiercer like eight years later than everyone else. <laughs> so Can't have them all. But um, yeah, I mean, Gareth himself was really shocked. The, studio, the studios were upset with him. And they basically tried to edit... Yeah, I guess Mick Garris himself, when he screened it, he said, this is a little too much. Can you make a few cuts? And I think Mike did. And then Showtime said, nope, still not good enough. We're not going to air it. Exactly. And I mean, Dargento was the other one who got cuts. There was uh, cuts of the penis chomping sequence. Right. Because God forbid we have a penis. I mean, there's there's (laughs) no amount of boobs that we can have this year that are going to make up for one half a penis shot. Yeah, I mean, until Spartacus was shown. Oh, God, I think Spartacus. The stu- like, studios didn't realize that, you know, you can show a penis, and it's not the sun. Yes. Well, <laughs> People aren't going to go blind. I-, I would love to read somebody um, doing a deep dive into penis on cable, because I think, I mean, Rome did it before Spartacus, and Spartacus was very much modeled after Rome, and both are wonderful. Mm. But And I think Oz would do it. Here and there, you would get penis on Oz. So I feel like Oz that's did it. Oz did it a, a fair amount. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but Oz was on HBO, though. That's the sort of main sort of difference. Whereas yeah, I but think Showtime was, was HBO. I mean, Showtime, Showtime is the equivalent of HBO. You had Showtime, HBO, and I guess TCM. Not TCM. Yeah. Um, what was it? TMC, the movie channel. TMC, the movie channel. Yeah. yeah. And those were in at least in the states, like your dueling premium cable channels. Cinemax came out was sort of, and I think Cinemax was always partially owned by HBO, 
or at some it is now i don't know if it always was but cinemax was where you could go like was was not purely soft softcore but it was a lot more softcore porn but hbo and showtime showtime was always kind of trying to meet hbo and it still is really in many ways um but now for me i watched this when it uh, was released, I guess I was. I remember downloading it. I remember illegally downloading it because it was like you had to watch it. It was the one they couldn't show, mm-hmm. and I watched it then and had feelings. And I watched it now and had feelings. Uh, as we dive into it, Christine, can you give us all the story <sighs> of Imprint? <laughs> I I honestly, I'm. This is going to be a real struggle. I'm going to be really upfront. I don't care enough. To even tell you how much I hated this because it's not worth my my like internal energy. Um, I think that this is maybe one of the worst things I've ever had to watch in my life, um, and that's saying something. Um, I guess it's a, a nonlinear story about beating women and hurting women, but also a woman's a demon. So like, I don't know. If somebody else wants to describe it, that's fine. But I'm genuinely angry. Ooh. And I like my time was wasted and I'll never get it back. Oh, I'm sorry. I think that this was absolute trash. And I'm really, really upset. <laughs> it put me in such a bad mood. It I went back to it. Not to not to bring not to bring the whole the whole party down, but I can't I cannot justify talking about this as a piece of art because that's how bad I thought it was. Yeah. It I I'm went back into it thinking like, it was trying, we balance it. Say that again. I don't know that. I don't know that you can though, okay. and I and I respect that you probably will tell me things that are good about this, but at its core, it's a really poorly told story mm. about bad women and hurting women, and I just couldn't like. Why would you take an hour to tell this story? <laughs> and it's the fact that it's that it's non-linear, but yet extremely linear, and I have to backtrack and find the same. It's like the movies or the show's trying to outdo itself over and over again. Well, what if they were related? I don't care. Just stop <laughs> it. What are you doing? It was like, it was trying to ratchet up how extreme it was over and over again to yeah. the point where I became fatigued. I don't know. Yeah. So okay. have at it, you two. And I'll just be over here. No, 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 no. Um, <laughs> I, cause I, I don't disagree with anything you say. I think for me, I went back into it thinking I was going to feel all those things. And I did, but I also think with this kind of, like, distance to it, watching it this time, I was... Because I had, like, no emotion whatsoever. I didn't care about anybody cause, because I knew where it went, although I realized, like, I don't... I still don't know that I understand certain details. Um, but that I kind of watched it, like, so objectively where you could throw as many fetuses at me and, I, and they're not going to shock me... But to then try to look at the bigger picture to say, this is Mike, who is a good filmmaker, who has made some outstanding things. What was he thinking and, and where is the logic? And I could see some things that I thought, oh, there is a that whole like Japanese ghost story, almost Rashomon quality of storytelling, like that aspect that I was like, oh, that's kind of there. I don't think it's done well, but there's elements of it. It shot. There are t- there are certain shots and certain compositions that I'm like, he's doing something here. The color is really interesting. The you know the visual. Th- there's there's something going on here, and I can for me just kind of just roll my eyes at the ridiculousness of oh, and here let's take the sweetest character we have and just torture her in the worst possible way to death. Yeah. 
So, I mean, in terms of the, the plot, I mean, here we obviously got Christopher, who's um, apparently a journalist in uh, Meiji-era Japan. Although, to myself and I think everyone else watching, he comes off more of as a cowboy, but I think they wanted to try and elevate his character. Um, for a start, Billy Drago plays Christopher, who's just awful. Um, <laughs> and he's basically come to this village, which is full of thieves and prostitutes and all sorts of horrible people because he's trying to find here is this woman he's in love with uh, named kimono who was a prostitute and she had like red hair and he finds out that he's arrived too late and she's committed suicide now at the same time he's facing this prospect that if he's hanging around this village before he can get the boat back he's got to get killed so he shacks up with uh, this other prostitute who's uh, heavily scarred called uh, yuki and she basically tell fills him in on what's been happening only we get to the end of her story and then she says no that pretty much wasn't it and then proceeds to tell us a much darker and more twisted tale that um i think had a lot of the gore hounds and the people who wanted me to go extreme Mm -hmm. rejoicing but i think it lost everyone else um because as i said this is Mike. they brought me in at like the height of his outlaw period he's done like usually the killer so everyone's wanting him to do more and you said to him you know go make whatever you want and he's just basically he's just gone extreme and between this and cut which we saw in three extremes it was just showed a guy just basically like i've got nothing else i can give you people um and everyone was sort of like oh mikey's lost it he's lost his edge and stuff and myself once he got over made these last two things and then went on to like do fed and assassins he just became a lot more interesting and sort of passed the torch on to see on sono who's sort of become mm. the new resident bad boy of Japanese cinema. So, But again, both directors who make very interesting films as well as very extreme films. So they go back and forth between the two. And I don't think if this is your first taste of Mike or if you've only seen sort of his sort of... It wouldn't put you off out things like Free Assassins or his later works like the more recent First Love, which are just absolutely fantastic and nothing like this at all. Um, but yeah, this doesn't help with the fact it's just horribly acted for a start. Yeah, well, I guess the the I, Billy Drago is the only American in it, and I mean, the poor guy, like he's just left out to dry. And clearly, he was directed to just, you know, hey, go big, make everything grand, and and you're just dripping in emotion, and yet he has no support, so he just ends up coming across as a terrible actor. And all of the Japanese actors apparently did not speak English and were given their lines phonetically. And on one hand, I think, and the reason was, I, I think the reason was just economics because he shot it in Japan. There is something to, you know, because he, he hasn't been the first director to do that deliberately to get a certain kind of performance that is unnatural out of actors. But I think in this case, it just, it, he, the, the biggest problem, not even the acting, it's that whole problem you have when you decide I am going to set this property in Japan but it's made primarily for an English speaking audience and they're not going to handle subtitles so I'm just going to have them all speak English. I'm going to have them all speak broken English even when they're talking to each other when they would be speaking Japanese. And it ends up, and I mean this was the big um, big controversy lodged at Memoirs of a Geisha which came out around the same time of how offensive that is and how ba- 
badly it ends up playing. Like, I'm watching right now on Hulu um, the series The Great, which is set in Russia, and they just have all the actors speak with British accents, and you just go with it because you realize, well, what would it be? It would be them talking in broken Russian English accents, which just doesn't make sense. The the biggest problem with Memoirs of Gish is the fact that you have a bunch of Hong Kong actresses playing Japanese, Japanese characters. Yes, but um, they're also speaking the... with they're speaking broken English with yeah. Japanese accents when you're right, some of them aren't even Japanese. And it just ends up being, un- I-, I find it uncomfortable as an English, because I mean, I- I've lived abroad and I've never been able to speak other languages. And I always am very, you know, kind of not like, I, I know that I, sh- I respect anybody that can speak another language. And, but, but when you have an entire film with actors of a different nationality, stumbling through English lines, it just feels somewhat embarrassing. Christine, did that bother you too? I can't even get to the point where something like that would bother me. <laughs> I, 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 oh boy. At what um, point were you checked out? Immediately. With, I don't, yeah, with with what like what was it just <laughs> the like the, the very shot, the very first shot being here's a pregnant corpse in the river? Well, they they it was it was the way it was filmed, it was the way it was framed, it was the way it was shot. Like I got it, it's a it's a dead woman. Great, I got it, it's a pregnant corpse. I got it. Stop showing it. Why are you showing it? You're still showing it. Yeah. They and I was like, okay, so now we're just gonna fetishize this which is what happened mm-hmm. all the violence and i get it billy drago's spoiler alert chained up at the end but all the violence was against women there yeah. oh i'm sorry that man got beat with a cup <laughs> but no nobody that man did not get the the no 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 so there's it was framed a certain way mm-hmm. um this island is only for demons and whores um you're only good for your pussy i don't like this i I got it great thanks thanks show i don't know i don't know why i can't even justify it it was worse than dance of the dead this Mm. is the worst of them this is this is this is the worst of them um i'm glad that we got some non-white people i'm glad that we got a cadre of ladies i'm sorry ladies i'm sorry that this is all you're good for and and media that this was it it was just really offensive and i didn't i didn't like it i didn't like it as a storyteller i didn't like it as a lady i didn't like it as a film fan there's there's nothing here for me i found and mika can be like well i didn't need it to be offensive well great maybe you shouldn't have told this story because it was fucking offensive it was gross it was so gross and so mean on purpose so when did horror become about i want to show you the most miserable yeah. thing i can fucking show you uh around 2004 i'd say <laughs> i don't i don't want that i'm not yeah. there for that and if people are totally into that that's great art is subjective and if you will tell me that this is art i believe you but like it's not for me and i was out immediately i was out immediately because i knew what this was about i'm not stupid i read stuff I can put two and two together. And it wasn't even fetuses. The fetuses, honestly, on mm-hmm. the list of sins that this commits, fetuses are really at the bottom. They really are. And that was something that I, I remember going back into this. I'm like, okay, I know, like, I remember just fetuses. Like, that's what you think of when I think of this episode. And then I, in watching it, I was also really, you know, because I'm like, you know, 
that's probably the reason this wasn't shown like it really does come down to that and yet that when you really think about it that's not even part of the story that does nothing you know if and whose story is it is a very confusing question because i still don't know if kimono kimomo 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 if she was real or not the first time i watched it i thought she wasn't this time i think she was she was real yeah i totally thought the first time i watched this i thought the whole twist was oh there was no kimomo this this is him oh i get what you're saying that yeah he raped and killed his sister and this prostitute here is just his id making him relive all of this and the reason that um fetuses are there is because oh and because his sister probably got pregnant and that was a whole thing and i totally remembered it being that that like oh yeah and the prostitute didn't even exist this whole story meant nothing it was just you know him going crazy in the prison and this time watching it like i no i think she absolutely was real and i think the last story is the real story but i guess there's a part of me that thinks like i don't know would it have been better if it wasn't it is i don't know if, how much you looked into the making of this it is based on a novel by a woman who plays the madam at the brothel I would love to read that. I'd Not really. Yeah. I would love for somebody <laughs> to tell me if I should read that. Because, look, my dudes, I'm not against... Like, the honestly, the line of this island is for whores and demons, I was like, bitch, I belong there. That sounds <laughs> awesome. But, like, like, everything was so fucking mean. And yeah. I'm sorry, but even if a woman wrote a novel that th- that was this fucking mean then that person has some internalized misogyny. Like, just because a woman conceptualized it or wrote it doesn't mean that it's okay. There is so much... Like, at one point, the person I was watching with did say, all right, we got it, you hate women. And it really (laughs) felt that way, you guys. Not to oversimplify, but it really felt that way. It really felt that way. Oh, certainly, June, when we get into the torture sequence here, which is really where the, fil- the episode just goes completely over the top. Yeah. Um, I felt they just felt like a huge overreaction to such a minor crime. It's sort of like there are many other ways you could have shown punishment for, say, crime. You don't need to hang someone upside down and jam fl- like flaming bamboo in them. Right. And then just like leave them like this. Well, and it, to what end? Just really because horrible places. Yeah, we know that she's a good money maker. Um, the first instruction is don't touch the face. And then what? Because you ran out of ways to torture her armpits, you're like, ah, I guess I got to go for the lips now. And then you end up killing her, or or taking her to the point where she's going to kill herself because they have destroyed her face. They've destroyed everything. And it's just, it is it's it it's like frustrating because I'm watching it knowing. Like, Mika, like, you don't have to do this. <laughs> like, and it, it, it is a shame because you think of, um, you know, Audition, which is really like the one straight horror of Mika that I've seen. And yes, we get a lot of torture at the end. But to me, that movie could end 10 minutes before it ends. And it's a great horror movie. The extra 10 minutes of torture isn't that exciting because it's telling this great story and it's um, a about in a sense about a kind not about misogyny but it's about a man who doesn't understand women and ends up screwing himself because there's a woman that understands him much better um and so in this it it, yeah i don't know i'm curious to read the material too i wonder if it's available in english 
Someone I would have think could have put a translation out there. I mean, anything that's like vaguely popular or certainly something that's associated with like when we saw the adaptations of Audition come through in Ring and they're, they're kind of wildly different than the ones we get. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly with when it comes to Audition, I think Audition is one of the films that's actually been kind of ruined by it having this legacy of being the scariest movie ever because yeah. whenever they do those lists, they show the twist. Yes. Um, and it's like showing the vanishing and what happens at the end of the vanishing. It's sort of like you've effectively ruined that. And the whole power of Audition was the fact that you are following this this guy and the darkness like suddenly comes out of Right. For 90 minutes, because... it, it's just a straight drama, relationship drama, and then you get the bag scene. And I know for me, the reason I watched Audition, and I don't know if this, this um, if you ever saw this, Richard, Christine, you probably did. Bravo did a series in the early 2000s, the TV network Bravo did a, the hundred scariest movie moments of all time. And they I've had watched a whole, it a million times. Oh my God. Cause it was like your introduction to stuff, right? Mm. It was, and it was just all different talking heads and you had like filmmakers and you had actors and they just counted from a hundred down to one and Audition was like number 13. And it was one of the few like newer foreign films that was on that list and yes, they go through the entire, I think Eli Roth was a talking head on it. Like they go through the entire ending and you know everything. And yes, when I sat down to watch Audition, I knew the whole thing. Um, but it was, a, you know, I probably would not have sought it out had it not been for that. And, you know, yeah, like he probably did. And again, like we saw this with a lot of the directors in this season of Master of Horror, Masters of Horror. They came in thinking... I kind of have a brand. I'm kind of known for this. So let me kind of do that. But, you know, and my level of effort is going to vary on how much I'm going to give. And the shame is, I feel like Nike did work hard. Like, this isn't phoned in. Like, this isn't, I don't know, like, we've seen some, like, this isn't like Dear Woman, where it's just, you feel like there's no effort put into it. There is effort put into this. Like, there are sets built and there is, um, you know, there are lighting choices and there are musical choices and, and there is a movie here and it's just such a bigger shame that it's so this. <laughs> oh yeah. The craftsmanship in the film. I mean, there's a lot of people here who've worked with Mike on many of his films before, such as like his special effects guy has been with him since like full metal Yakuza. We got uh, Tomiyochi Kiriati's uh, cinematography, which is, Itself, the cinematography is shot very beautifully, it is, especially yeah. for the the budget he's working with. Because I mean, it's not the same as he's working with film budget. And I think when it comes to Mike, the fact that he's doing you know VCD sort of projects in Japan, he's work, used to working with a small budget. Yeah, and, and go a long way. Most of these episodes, I mean, of the twelve, no, very few of them look any good whatsoever. They like all of them that limited budget. I think the cinematography may have been where you see it the most because they all just don't have that polish. And this one does have better polish probably than most of them. Christine, would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, it looked different. <laughs> the, the making I mean, of it that you get in the disc is really worth checking out. So, the, This is the only one, I think, that does not have the special effects done by... Um, Greg Nicotero and KNB or KBN KNB. Um, I think KNB. all the other ones were him and his team, but this one it's not. It's I I don't know the name, but like you said, it's his collaborator. And so I mean, hey, we get um, anybody else think of Hamburger Helper when we got to the hand head? <laughs> no, no, I was 
Probably not in the right frame of mind for that. Christine, what, but when you saw the, so, you know, for those of you who haven't watched, at the end, our, um, you know, our, our narrator uh, reveals the real source of her crimes. It is not her, but it's that she has a twin sister who is a hand stuck to the corner of her head. Is that the way to describe uh-huh. her? Yeah. It's yeah. a living hand. And to me, uh, she looked like the Hamburger Helper mascot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, it, um, it made me laugh. I mean, I get, I don't know what was my intended reaction. Was I supposed to be shocked or like floored or it was, was it supposed to add intrigue? At that point, I don't know because every story she told was a lie and I was bored yeah. at hearing different versions of the same story. And then there was a hand. I will say, and this is the only ounce of credit I'm going to give here, that when the little thingies started moving in the hair... It was like, oh, that's neat, and then it was goofy. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. Yeah. It also makes me think of The Grudge, too, now that I said that. Yeah, there's little thingies moving in hair, mm-hmm. and it looks kind of cool, and like, ooh, what's... And then you're like, oh, never And then mind. we see way too much of it, so it does not look cool anymore. Although, I would take a spinoff movie about the two of them, like, just, I don't know, like, in a traveling band, just entertaining the masses. So like, why wasn't it about them? If it was if it was about like this this evil demonic weird twin hand, like why wasn't it about that? I'm a hundred percent here for that. Kill everybody, weird lady. Set up all your friends. Get them all tortured. I don't give a fuck. It's that she wasn't as even though she was the one talking all the fucking time. It was never about her for some reason. Somehow it wasn't about her because the story kept changing. And now I'm supposed to feel bad, but then I'm not supposed to. And now I feel bad again. But now she's actually like the mastermind. Like, I don't tell tell the story in a straightforward fashion because you didn't surprise anybody. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't surprised. I it went exactly where I thought it was going to go. Like. And if anything, if you're not, it's a little confusing. I had to here and there. I don't. It's like, very confusing. I get like, like, well, wait a second. I thought she was a midwife. No, because we got told a weird version of the story up front. I guess to make you feel bad. I don't know why. Why everyone? Why? I don't have I an answer. This, Elwood. Just <laughs> um. I mean, as I said, I was confused by like the story point of this, and so just breaking it down into its various parts, and I think, again, this comes back to the fact that we haven't got a very good actor here, yeah. um, and the fact that it's supposed to be presented that this this story of how she, you know, she comes to this village, her mother was the local uh, midwife, and the idea being that he's like, looks at her and he's like, you know, this story doesn't sit right, and then she's like, oh, you know what, I'm going to tell you the truth. And then we come back and it's like, here's all the details I changed to like, smooth it out. And the fact that my mother was the town abortionist, my father was a drunk. Um, and I think the whole abortionist thing is just so that we can somehow relate to my mother like seeing this mutant child and the fact that she just so carelessly tosses it in the river. Um, and this was supposed to be like more of a aha moment but in the end it just sort of falls apart because we get to the end and then we end in this like do you say machina it's sort of like oh no we got a conjoined twin as well it's like <laughs> oh isn't this freaky and it's it's the you'd think there's the put the i don't know if it's the fact that they were trying to pad it out or that they just thought they were being smarter than they were with this story it's it's just really not clear where they were going with this yeah um and it's a shame because there are some 
interesting characters it's just what they're doing which isn't interesting um such and as, the you know, whole having... question of whose story is it is it billy drago's or is it uh the narrator's and it doesn't you know we don't i don't know and it's one thing like oh well you know a movie can be two you have two running storylines but in the end they're both punished and i don't know if I don't know, like, it's you're just left kind of going like, uh-huh, and and I don't know what I'm supposed to feel, if I'm supposed to feel anything, um, and there's some, and again, this I think does come down to the language barrier, but there's just some writing that is, just, like, there is one line that stood out to me, because it was just one of those lines that when you get to, you're like, oh, this also, I think, encompasses everything. When she gets to the final story... And she's revealing the truth about her parents. And the words she says are, it turned out that mama and dada were brother and sister. No, it doesn't turn out that way. It turns out that way as if when I'm retelling this story to somebody else, oh my God, and it turned out they were sister. Like, no, no, no. But if I'm telling the story about my mother and father, it's that, and actually they were brother and sister or all this time they were like, just that, line and the way it was written just kind of made it stand out to me of how forced it was of how much more can we shock okay we already have a little girl getting abused by a priest now we're gonna have incest now the dad's gonna rape the daughter and just everything and then to christine's point and it's all against women I feel I feel worse now because I knew uh, going into this I knew that uh, there was a high chance that uh, if you weren't weren't going to enjoy it. I don't particularly enjoy it myself. It's one of the weaker entries. I agree with Christine on that that fact. It's down there with like Dance of the Dead and um, perhaps I want to throw in the Dear Woman as well. But I for myself it's more on a storytelling rather than anything I got against Landis's. So um but yeah it's i feel sorry for anyone who came into this like hearing all this big talk about Mike, and then this is what their first introduction is and the fact that they may not look at his other stuff because as i said he's done his filmography is longer why he's done over 100 films yeah and they're not all like this there are a large <laughs> portion of them especially in his early career but his more recent output is completely different to this and it's a lot more sort of mainstream and um, yeah, I wonder I if, there's a, a, if there's a way we could get Takashi Miike to make a Hallmark Christmas movie. I feel like it, it's, <laughs> it's it worth making him. some phone calls, writing some emails. I, I want to live in that world. I keep because this is the thing. I keep um, think because Japan doesn't separate. Uh, Christmas, yeah, I keep finding all these Japanese films which have got like Christmas um, in it. I think it's like Memories of uh, Matsuo, which is on Shut Up, uh, which is just packed with Christmas references. So whoever keeps telling me that Japan and Christmas don't go together, I think needs to be checking with a different. But yeah, Miike Christmas would be fantastic. Money for it. Yeah, it's. Be- I would say, and this is true of I think all thirteen episodes of this season. I don't think any of these episodes should necessarily dissuade somebody from checking out that director's other work. I think the flip is true. I think, um, and I'll say it mostly for William Malone, of if there was an episode that you liked, well, then definitely check out that filmmaker's other work. Hey, if you like chocolate, 
give Macaros' other stuff a try. I don't think anybody liked chocolate, so it doesn't matter. Um, but yes, I'd agree that if this was your only Mike, don't, you know, it, this isn't full fully repre- representative of his entire work. I mean, th- this was a period. This was, hey, early 2000s was Hostile, Saw, and that's what I think most... Uh, mainstream horror was trying to capture and when that's bad it's really bad yeah Eli Roth has a lot to answer for and I I feel ashamed that I once touted him as this golden boy of horror Um, it was funny how that quickly faded (laughs) well the the Eli Roth thing it's I I still I still like Hostel 2 I think Hostel 2 is actually um, a good way of de- of addressing what was going on with horror at that time, but I think he did just become such a mouthpiece for that era, um, and it just ends up when you start looking back. And again, it's it's true of I think horror more than any other genre goes through these very specific movements, and every what eight years maybe you get a cycle. And usually there's two or three going on at the same time, right? And in the early 2000s, it was kind of found footage and torture porn. And then in the mid 2000s, I think you had this sort of um, almost tamer ghost story that sort of came from like Insidious. That was a different look, but then along with found footage. And so it constantly changes. Um, and this was just a, an era that was, you know, hey, we were going through war <laughs> and the world didn't know how to deal with it and horror found a certain way and it has aged weirdly for the most part not very well i think um especially i think when we look at this season right we look at these 13 episodes um just the things that really because again there's individual really strong things going on there's there's some great episodes there's some smart things but there's also, I think, you can look at it as a body of work of a time. And the things that I keep repeating themselves just make me say, I'm glad it's not 2005 anymore. Uh, Christine, would you agree? Uh, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I've, I've been ruined. Oh, I'm sorry. No. Christine, <laughs> we still have two more seasons of the show to do. Does it? Do you think it'll ever be like this again? In what way? <laughs> like, will it ever be? Is this the lowest low, or are there lower depths to plunder? Do you want an honest answer, or do you want the answer that I should give you to um, keep you happy? <laughs> I that mean, tells me hey, all I need to know. Like, well, yes. I mean, unrelated but related. This week, okay. if you are, you know, if if you go on Twitter, if you are kind of read. Uh, the internet social media of the horror genre, a lot of drama happened, right? A lot of mm-hmm. arguments came up, discussions came up about, hey, you know what? There's a lot of really awful men in positions of power who have been doing some really shitty things or saying some really shitty things. And aren't we past that? When are we going to be past that? And you have a lot of great, smart, brave people who are addressing it and saying, yeah, hey, when are we going to address it? And then you have a lot of a lot of people who are, you know, probably a lot of trolls who are just saying, give me more boobs, give me more boobs, and and that's that. And 
so I don't know. I think it's an interesting time because on one hand we have more women and people of color and, and everything else making movies than ever before, but we still don't have nearly enough. Um, I, I think there's also kind of a, a question mark right now with the movie industry being just in such question marks because of, you know, what's going on with COVID of, oh, is this going to kill the mid-budget movie? Is this going to kill the, you know, our directors that were finally getting chances not going to get chances because are we going to go back to only make movies mm, that are going to make a lot yep. of money because we can't afford them otherwise? Or is it going to be, you know what, the world has gone to streaming, so now Blumhouse is going to produce 40 straight-to-Netflix movies and they're going to be more willing to hire directors with unproven track records. I don't know. I, th- I think that's so much of it. And I think when I look at these 13 episodes, which were made by, with really, you know, one exception, you had one director who was probably in his, like, 20s or 30s with um, Lucky McGee with Sick Girl. All of Mm -hmm. the other directors in this series for season one were men who were probably 50 and up. And they, you know, and we... Like, look, we all know that we the way anybody approaches making art is to make the art they want to see. And when everything is made by a man of a certain type, you're going to get that. But mm. I feel like you could never have done if Mick Garris today said, I'm going to I'm going to revive it. We're doing Fear Itself season two. Um, there would be no way in hell that you would have 13 or 12 white men making mm-hmm. episodes. It wouldn't happen. Twitter wouldn't let it happen. And yes, there would be cries of, well, there aren't enough, there are no female masters of horror. They're not, you know, they don't get to make, they haven't made enough movies, which we know is bullshit, but also like it wouldn't happen now. So I think it is getting like, is it great? No, but I think it, 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 we're in the best place we've been and that's kind of exciting. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think horror in general is a very exciting place. I mean, we're at the moment in the battle of the independence because we've got Bloomhouse going up against A24. Yeah. And both houses are producing very different movies. A24 is more art house and doing really wonderful stuff like Midsommar, which mm-hmm. I just recently watched. Oh, I and it. had I not seen The Wicker Man, I probably would have loved it a lot more. But I loved <laughs> what it was doing. Oh, yeah. They're probably, they're, I think The Wicker Man, yeah, they've been, both films are doing their own, they're doing a similar story, but doing it in very different ways. Yes. Um, I just thought that, because you know the payoff of The Wicker Man, you can only be shocked once. Um, sure. And if I hadn't seen it, then, you know, the ending of Midsommar would have been a bit more shocking. But I still enjoyed it, nonetheless. I thought it was doing some very interesting things. And I think Bloomhouse, on the other hand, is doing some very interesting things, even though his films may be seen as more disposable. When you look at The Purge and how they built this wire-esque world oh, yeah. with each film focusing on a different area. So we're like in the suburbs, we're in the city, we're in mm-hmm. government, and it's just been really interesting how that series developed. So... Yeah, um, I I adore the Purge series. It's funny, I was my parents are obviously like most of us in quarantine. And so it's been a lot of me just recommending different things for them to watch and they're kind of like running out of things. And I said, "You know what? Like do the Purge universe. Like do all four movies, do the two seasons. Like there's so much there." And I think yeah, and like that's a, that's a huge franchise that I think we forget is as big a franchise as it is. Um in part because I think so many people didn't go see it in the theater. They watched it eventually. But yeah, The Purge, which um, I, I think also is, you know, it, it's the first three films were made by James DeMonaco. He hired, uh, I believe it's a black man for the last film. And that, yeah, like you have 
these are movies that are maybe even if they started being made by white men, they've evolved and they're very much about the here and now. And yeah, like you do have, you have good stuff both in the mainstream and independence now. And I think there is as much as a lot of it, you know, it needs to still be better, but there is a fight towards more women, more people of color, um, a lot of that. And it's still going to be a battle. Uh, but I think when, when we look at 2005's Masters of Horror and you imagine what this series would have been today, um, I don't know, that, that for me gives me a little bit of hope to see how far we've come. Yeah. Well, I mean, the series is a whole just to make Gareth decide to throw a, a bunch of impromptu dinners and bring together these directors sure. he had previously hosted on his, his cable show. And it was just the fact that, you know, they all got talking about the business and stuff and that Gareth basically realized, you know, I've got all these guys to go. Why don't we do something with it instead of just holding dinner parties? And that's obviously where they go. And and yeah, I think it just revived a lot of people whose careers have been sort of flagging. It brought back to attention a lot of people what they contributed to horror. So when you had like uh, Joe Dante, people like Joe Dante, not horror director, mm-hmm. thinking he directed The Howling. Like the quintessential werewolf movie, how can you say he's not a horror director? Um, and the same with Landis. It's like, yeah, Landis did other movies, but he also did. Uh, he's made new auto contributions like American Werewolf in London, and um, he did like the Thriller video um, and other things I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. So, but I, yeah, it would be interesting to see if you did this project now. Who, who'd you pick? I mean, you kind of breaking your own legs by saying this is the master of horror because. Anyone you bring in, like Mikay, like Lucky, who's not sort of established himself in the genre, going to be instantly people going to be like, "Oh, they're not a master." Yeah. And it's like, no, because we got to pad out a season. That's why. Yeah. Again, I, I think to me one of the most interesting things was how some of the the lesser known or the kind of less um, mainstream successful directors made some of the best episodes. Christine, did you do a ranking? Um. Not like an official written down one, but I'm pretty sure I could, I could do it. I kind of was rating them on IMDb Ooh, okay. as we, as we went. So I think that that's, I mean, all right, let, let, my let's rating dive. should dictate. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that works. Um, how about I'll, I'll just do my from bottom to top and then you tell me roughly where you're, where you landed on them. Your bottom to top? I'm doing my bottom to top. Okay. Good. All right. My bottom, I think was Dear Woman. Because I think it was the laziest. It really, to me, had such little effort put behind it. And right behind it, in number 12, was Chocolate. And I debated, because mm-hmm. I think Chocolate is, in some ways, even less entertaining. But I'm like, you know, Chocolate had Henry Thomas. And Chocolate at least made an effort, whereas I don't think Dear Woman made any effort. Mm-hmm. Uh, then number 11 for me is Dance of the Dead. Uh, mm-hmm. Number 10, I'm going to say Imprint. Number, no, number 10, I'm going the other way. Number nine, imprint. Number eight, I'm going to say Heckle's Tell because I think it was just blah. Yeah. Uh, number seven, Jennifer. Number six, Cigarette Burns, which is kind of right in the middle. Number five, Pick Me Up. I definitely am doing my numbers wrong. I think that's actually number six. Number <laughs> one in front of, I didn't number them. Number one in front of Pick Me Up. I'm going to go with Incident on and off a mountain road. Which, yeah. again, if I go back and rewatch it, it probably will play so much better. Uh, then, yep. so now I'm in number four, Sick Girl. Number mm-hmm. three, Dreams in the Witch House. Number two, Fair-Haired Child. Number one, Homecoming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we're not, 
we're not exact, but like we're in the same orbit. Orbit. I don't know why that word came out of my mouth. So weird. <laughs> um, my top. My top is um, Fair Hair Child. Mm-hmm. My number two is Sick Girl. My number three is Dreams in the Witch House. My number four is Homecoming. Five is Incident. Mm-hmm. And then it just then it kind of falls apart. I guess maybe Pick Me Up. Yeah, Pick Me Up. Heckle's Tale, Cigarette Burns, and Chocolate, Jennifer, Dear Woman, Imprint. Is that all of them? Dance yeah. of the Dead. How Dance could you forget? Dead. Your favorite. Dance of the Dead, then Imprint. I, but like, I feel like we're in, we're, we're saying the same kind yeah. of thing. Like, your top five and bottom five are like, like our top five and bottom five are the same, just in different order. Yeah. Just different orders, which, which like, I I get. I just like so for me, Fair Hair Child was a breath of fresh air. Yes. In this season, so for that alone, that's my top. And Dreams in the Witch House was just really beautifully shot and really like kind of like very dark and had a crappy ending. But like I like that still. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have to have a happy ending. I thought that it did that really well. And Homecoming, I thought was exceptional, especially when you look at the the rest of them. The rest of them, it's exceptional. And Sick Girl, I mean, Sick Girl is, is Sick Girl and Fair Haired Child the standout? I think it might be. Yeah. Those are the two standouts. They're the ones that are like, I mean, and to a degree, Incident, a little bit. Incident was different enough, but it still fell into some, some typical tropes. Mm-hmm. There was some Texas Chainsaw shit in it. But like, I feel like Sick Girl and, and, um, Fair Haired Child. Fair Child was we're like we're gonna we're approaching this in a different way. Yeah. We're looking at this anthology in a in a different way. They looked. I feel like those two approached it as like a classic anthology. Yes. Horror anthology as opposed to like what horror looked like to that director or what looked like to, at that time. And I feel like a lot of them were like, as a horror director, this is what I do, or I'm reflecting the horror of the mid two thousands. And so I appreciate that there was like maybe a little bit. A little bit of a different angle taken, um, and I'm happy that there were there were there are genuinely like a handful in this season that I walked away with like something from, like I liked the storytelling or I liked the 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 performance. Like so that makes me happy because when you get into the dregs, which I'm not gonna apologize anymore for this, the dregs like Dance of the Dead and mm-hmm. Imprint, I. I don't I wonder like what is this genre even for me like what the fuck am I even showing up here for like you don't want me here and I don't want to be here that's genuinely how it felt watching those two episodes specifically and 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 it's disheartening so like thanks to Lucky and William Malone for (laughs) giving me something in this in this season no I I think that is such a good point and it's why why I find it so interesting to do something like this, to take a year that was now 15 years ago and look at 13 stories that were told with kind of the, um, you know, the assignment being, give me your best one hour horror story. You're a master of horror, go. And how, you know, how you had a handful that either phoned it in or just took that as, oh, I can be shocking. So let me just make sure I show a lot of boobs and, you know, a lot of, you know, dead corpses being fucked or whatever it's going to be. And then you had, you know, the handful who were mostly either 
newer filmmakers, filmmakers that didn't have the same resume, or filmmakers who did and who are clearly so smart, like mm-hmm. Joe Dante and Stuart Gordon, who could come to it and say, okay, well, here is the best story I can tell with those parameters. And I think that's what Stuart Gordon did. I think he, he looked and said, okay, I have an hour. This is the story I can do. I can do this story well with these constraints. Mm-hmm. I think William Malone took it as, you know, who was easily on this list. I think he's the last ranked master of horror, but yet he made one of the best episodes because he yeah. clearly cared about it and, and brought and told a good story and told it well and had unique touches to it, but, you know, stayed within the format. And you have somebody like Joe Dante who just came in and said, okay, look, I'm not going to make the scariest story. I can't do that. I don't do that. But, hey, it's 2005. I have something to say about the way the government's selling us a war that we shouldn't have bought. So I'm going to tell that story, and I guess I'll use zombies to do it. There, there's, you know, it's it's fascinating how, how many ups and downs you can have. Yeah, and yeah so it's as, wild. As, yeah, as depressing as it was to watch episode after episode of um, white male uh, heterosexual fantasies, I think the good does outweigh the bad when you can really pull some of it. So, I don't know, Richard, did you go back to any of these episodes that you hadn't watched in a while? Yeah, I've actually been rewatching it along with you guys to, as a fun revisit. So, I mean, I got the box set when it came out uh, for both series, and it was a fun little thing that every night when I came home, because I was working nights at the airport, so I'd come home and I'd watch an episode. I normally <laughs> scared the hell out of myself that bad that I'd have to watch like the making of just so I could get some bloody sleep. Nice. Um, Perhaps it's not as effective now on the second run round, but I, you know, I appreciated at the time what it was doing. It was doing you know old school horror, which um, nobody else was sort of doing at the yeah. time. And as I said before, it was masters sort of uh, coming back to the fold. Um, and as for my sort of my sort of favourites and um, the ones I dislike the least, I think when it comes to ones I dislike the least, I think it's going to be like Imprint, Chocolate, uh, Dance of the Dead. I think Imprint right at the bottom, I think it's just too grotesque. And as much as I like Mike, it's not horror. It's yeah. just grotesque. It's not his best by any um, means. I think Chocolate, I mean, I forgot that Gareth directed Critters too. I was sort of like, thought he was sort of like... His best work, Critters too. But, but um, yeah, he did, uh, he's, he's done some good stuff. And I mean, Chocolate has some interesting moments, such as uh, the guy being fucked, which I thought was kind of, kind of interesting. But... Um, yeah, Dance of the Dead, I mean, other than... I think if Robert England hadn't been in it, I think we would have pretty much not had any excitement for that one at all, because it's sure. just sloppy work. Yeah. Um, as for my favourites, though, I mean, I love Incident on and Off a Mountain Road, um, I love Cigarette Burns, and uh, Jennifer, I think, is one I enjoyed. I Perhaps viewing it for a different lens than <laughs> you two, but again, this has been the fun thing about listening back and yeah. having that different opinion, and what I always was uh, love again is it's boring if you just listen to people telling you the same opinions yourself. I mean, True. it's nice to hear someone like give me a completely different opinion. You know, challenge the way I look at things. It's just a really interesting way to to view things and always just never just think of things one way. Just like try and get many aspects on something. It only it either strengthen your belief in something or it open your mind to something that you haven't thought of before. So yeah. And for me, the the biggest takeaway I took was I did go out and seek out more William Malone. And uh, Parasomnia is on Shudder now. It was the film he made in 2008. He actually wrote it 
while he was filming Fair Haired Child was when he started writing it. And it's on Shudder, and I dove into it, and I really liked it. And I could see all of his fingerprints on it. So, it, you know, it was, I did leave this saying, I am going to go back and watch more Lucky McGee stuff. I am going to make sure I see even more Stuart Gordon, and I am going to keep watching, I'm going to keep supporting William Malone's career, which is never something I would have said. So, all right, well, I think that wraps up season one. Would we all agree? Christine, did you have any more final thoughts on season one? Uh, I don't think so. I'm simultaneously dreading and looking forward to season uh, <laughs> two. It's, it's going to be a ride. It's going to be a ride. Uh, Richard uh, Elwood, thank you so much for being here. Can you tell the fine people at home where else they could find you? Uh, yes, yeah, certainly. Well, thank you again for having me. If you want to film my writing, you can check it out uh, from the Dexter DVD Hell. I've just kind of restarted over on WordPress, so it's uh, from com. The blogger archive is still there if you want to check that out. Um, as for podcasts, I'm currently on, we're currently producing season five of Movies and Tea, uh, which is Movies and Tea podcast at WordPress.com where each season we pick a different director, we go through their filmography and uh, reevaluate uh, the work as a whole. And so far we've done um, Paul W.S. Anderson, Sophia Coppola, Guillermo del Toro, and more recently Ang Lee. We're now on our David Fincher season, and we've got uh, another season coming up where we're just focusing on Vimo directors and uh, just assessing their work. And uh, the other show I do is the Asian Cinema uh, film club which uh, emily's been a guest on you can yes, yes. talk about battle royale um and you can find that at uh, asian cinema film club uh, dot wordpress.com um or just you know look at az film club on um twitter or wherever podcasts are found and you should find us but yeah we've uh coming up to episode 50 which should be either be out or coming out shortly when this is released and we're going to be talking about seven samurai um and before that we talked about bit of sweet life so we really mix it up it's uh it's a fun project and uh, one that people seem to be digging, which is always nice. So, very and, uh, cool. Yeah, that's where you can find me. All right. Well, everybody, uh, we hope you've enjoyed season one. Season two is on its right on its heels. Will it have more <laughs> boobs? Will it have penises? I don't know. It's been a while, and I haven't watched all the episodes, so we have much to find out. But in the meantime, as always, be safe. Wear your masks. Be responsible. Wash your hands. And that's all. Mm, what helped her hamburger taste this good? Hamburger Helper. Helped her hamburger. Mm-hmm. Hamburger Helper. Helped her hamburger helper. Make a great meal. Hamburger Helper helps her make a great meal. Like our cheeseburger macaroni. Just add it to hamburger and make a saucy, savory supper from hearty elbow macaroni and tangy cheddar cheese. Kids gonna love it. Mm-hmm. Dad will too. Mm-hmm. Hamburger Helper. Helped her hamburger. Make a great deal.